Okay, for our main message today, this, this sermon, we're going to have Mr. Matt Steele with First Peter, Part 5. Good afternoon, everybody. Slowly moving this microphone. Sorry about that. How's everybody doing today? Beautiful Sabbath day. Not uh, too much rain. Hopefully we'll have a, a fun uh, evening tonight with the, uh, the activities. So um, I'm going to change my introduction a little bit because uh, of uh, some of the points that Ken brought out earlier. Um, I've been thinking about a lot of the, the topics that, a lot of the issues that Ken had uh, alluded to, and it's interesting because I wanted to get back to the study that I'm trying to do through Peter. And uh, this next chapter is, uh, it's a tricky one. It's a dangerous one, in fact. Anymore in our world, certainly it's a dangerous one for a white male to talk about. And of course, that's, uh, that's uh, chapter three. Um, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. But, you know, we do observe, don't we, a lot of social change in our, in our times. And, you know, if you look at the history of the world, we, we see social change all over. It's, it's throughout history. Because, well, we're not all speaking Latin right now, are we? Because at some point, the Roman Empire ceased to be the Roman Empire. And somebody else came over, and somebody else replaced them. So with each page of history, we see change. We see change brought on by war, by, uh, by religious conversions of, of different types, and you know, new philosophies coming up in societies. And that's very much the history of mankind. What's really unique, though, about the period that we live in now, and uh, I'm reading a book right now that is called Them. It's a, it's a very interesting book. And, and in this book, it talks about how rapid change happens for our generations in, in ways that previous generations never experienced. We can now see changes in social, uh, social norms and practices in society within decades. And we've all experienced that. For the last hundred years or so, those changes have, have, have taken place within individual decades. Now, those changes can be for good, and those changes can be for bad, and, and maybe some of those are neutral. But the important thing, and perhaps the challenging thing for us as Christians, is to not allow society's changes to influence the, the truth, the, the very core of what we get from God's word. It's very, very easy to look at that. Very, very easy to find ourselves on a political sphere on one side of the other and justify our political positions based on what we see in scripture. Jesus was very careful, wasn't he, about not doing that. He wasn't here the first time to bring down government. He wasn't here the first time to overthrow the Romans. The first time 
he was here was to proclaim the good news that he will bring the kingdom of God and that through him is our salvation. And so he called us to do that same thing. And we'll get into that a little bit. But why do I mention all of this? Well, as I said before, social change happens in society. It happens around us, and it's happening at an incredible pace. And it's happening quicker and quicker, which of itself leads us to start to wonder, well, are we hurtling towards the abyss? Is the apocalypse at the end of this? Of course, we don't know. We might feel that it is, as the, the norms that surround us have changed. And, well, what, how am I supposed to address you? Uh, you know, a little bit like what, what Ken referenced. You don't want to be offensive, but at the same time, well, you look like a guy. I'm going to address you as a mister. How do we navigate these very rapid changes that are going on in the world and not cause offense unnecessarily? It seems that our society changes in very significant ways with every decade. But for good or bad, we have to navigate these new rules. But why is it important? Why is it important that we navigate through this environment and not let it affect the truth that we know that God has given us? We as Christians are very much living in a type very similar world, a type of world that Peter lived in. In fact, if Peter and Paul were to be here today and could understand our language, they would probably find us incredibly similar now to the Roman world, with all these confused different deities and beliefs and, you know, and atheism and agnosticism and, and pick your flavor very much a world very similar to that, with all kinds of influences for the kinds of behavior that they were warning against. And in this realization, we can take courage, right? Because it may feel like, how can we possibly navigate this world? And yet, if it is like the world that Peter and Paul and all the disciples lived in, we have their roadmap. We have how they navigated it in the scriptures. And so it makes the scriptures more relevant to how we live in the world today. And so in this context, I wanted to pick this study back up of First Peter. And last time we concluded, we were reminded that we are public figures, right? That no matter what the world tries to tell us about that your religion and your faith is private, and you can do that privately, but don't bring it into the public sphere. No, at its core, Christianity is a public faith. We are required to exercise it publicly. We live public lives of devotion to Christ. Not just when we're here at church, but when we're at work and at school and in the community and in every part of our life. We are required to walk with humility and grace, but in full view of everyone. That is our calling. And when we do this, what can happen? Well, we can be reviled, can't we? We can be mocked. We can be belittled. We can be ridiculed and put down. 
We can be accused of all kinds of things. But Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. He says, for to this you were called. This is why we are here. This is why we, we weren't all just snatched away the minute that we believed. As soon as we came up out of the waters of baptism and off to heaven, we're good. This is why we are still here. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. This is what we're called to do. We're called to be the witnesses and follow in his steps. And that's very critical more critical now in our time than probably ever before because we are so polarized in this country of ours with all of the politics and it's easy for Christians to pick a side and base their their faith and their religious war on that side of their politics it's easy to get drawn into that did Jesus do that he's telling us here very clearly that we should follow in Jesus' footsteps. It's very careful. It's very careful that we, that we follow this. It's very important that we follow this carefully. He is our example. If he had suffering, we will have suffering. If he was accused of wrongdoing while doing righteousness, then we also will be accused of that. He suffered for us. So it's really reasonable, isn't it, that we should suffer for him. In John chapter 16 and verse 31, he says, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world... And here's, somebody told me last night at an event that we were at as a family, this is one of God's promises. God promised, in the world, we will have trouble. It's a promise. Not one of the ones that we really want. But then, of course, he says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He's overcome it. So we should hold on to that as we live in this rapidly changing society because we're going to have trouble while we're here. We are going to have trouble. But going back to 1 Peter in, in chapter 2 and verse 22, he says, who committed no sin. Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. By those stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So what should we say to this? What can we say to this? To this calling, this is what we are called to do. That when we suffer for Christ's sake, is that really so hard for us? Is that really too much for us to bear? What Peter is trying to get us to understand here is that 
Christ Jesus suffered for our evil works. He suffered for our bad actions, for our sin, for our lies, for our corruption, for our greed, for everything that we have done wrong. He suffered for all of that. So, he only asks us to suffer for his righteousness. Seems like a fair trade. A very fair trade. We suffer for his grace, for his mercy, for his unending righteousness. So when we suffer for Christ, we are affirming to the world, again, as these very public figures, that we are his and that he is ours. That we are walking with him. And then, Peter turns into something that is without a doubt counter-cultural to the times that we live in today. Without a doubt. And we all need to admit that. And we all need to look at this scripture and say, well, what are we going to do with Peter and what he is about to tell us? Do we accept it? Do we learn from it, incorporate it in our lives? Do we reject it? Say, oh, that was a product of his time. That was, you know, an influence of society around him. How do we relate to what he's about to say? Before we jump into it, though, I want to remind us all that everything that we've read about Peter so far, the central point what he is trying to tell us is that we are to walk in humility. Right? That we are to be humble. That we are to obey the king. He says, obey the king. Follow the law. Why? Because we are like Christ. We are to be like Christ. And what did Jesus say to Pilate? If my kingdom were of this world, my followers would have fought that you would not have been able to take. But his kingdom isn't from this world. Our kingdom is not from this world. And so we are not here to overthrow society. We are here to bear witness to society. Remember Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among Gentiles, that when they speak evil against you, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So when that day comes, when that day of the Lord comes, then they get to glorify God because of our good work. And again in verse 13, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not as using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, Fear God and honor the president. 
then it was a king or Caesar. But for us, it's honor the president, the government. Boy, that's hard to do. Depending on your political persuasion, isn't it? Depending on who's president. But that's what we're called to do. We are not some radical freedom fighters called to overthrow the governments and societies of the world. Whose job is that? That's Christ's job. He's going to do it. We don't have to worry about that. He will do it when he returns. Until then, we are called to be witnesses of Christ to the world, to share the good news, and also witnesses against the world for, for Christ, to the Father. We are the ones to be sighing and crying, how long, O oh Lord, faithful and true. We are supposed to be those ways. So, in this walk of humility, in this attitude of humility that we are supposed to, to have, that's what Peter says, and that's the kind of the, the vein in which he is writing to the churches in Asia when he says in 1 Peter chapter 3, and verse 1, he says, Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct, accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair and wearing gold or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good, and, do, and are not afraid of any terror. Now, as I mentioned before, on the face of it, this passage looks incredibly countercultural. And how can this, how can this be reconciled with the world that we live today? How can it be reconciled with the highly politically charged movements that we have in, in, in just the last few years? How do we reconcile this? There would be many women in various social change movements that would be throwing rocks at me right now for reading this out aloud. Right? They would perhaps say that this passage is demeaning. It's oppressive. It's chauvinistic. And yet as Christians, men and women both have to deal with this passage. Can we just cut it out? Can we just say, well, that was a mistake. We're just going to edit Peter a little bit. Toss that little part out there. If so, then are there any other little parts that we don't like so much? Because where does it end, as I said before? Or we put it in the framework of, well, this was during those times. But that's not what we see, is it? Because he goes on to explain why 
he thinks we should do this. Why he tells us that we should do this. But what does he want us to understand? What is Peter trying to get at? Well, I think this passage, we simply find, if we take away the labels and, and all the pressure of, of the battle of the sexes, as it were, if we take all of that out of it, what we really find is the characteristics of a good Christian. Period. It's about being a good Christian. It's about following Christ and being like Christ. And I, you know, I can't speak to the circumstances of what Peter was writing about. We could, we could probably really study that. I'm sure that these are new Christians, lived in a pagan world, and now they're being given instruction on how to live differently and how to relate husband and wife differently than what they had before. Peter says, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some who do not obey the word, they without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. So, apart from the obvious benefits of matrimonial harmony, right, more than what, what he's getting at in that regard to the relationship between the husband and wife, what Peter's trying to encourage the wives to do is to be a vessel by which they can save their husband. And that's what he's saying. That through the conduct of the wife, the husband, the non-believing husband, can be saved, can be brought to Christ, can be redeemed. Would she not want that? This is her husband. Presumably she likes him. Maybe even loves him a little bit. Would she not want that? Of course she would want that. So first and foremost, that, that's what comes out to me, is that this is a means by which she can redeem her husband. And just consider for a little bit what it might be for a couple, a married couple of many years or a few, when the wife hears about this Jesus guy and starts learning and starts listening to these preachers that are coming around and is converted and is baptized and receives the Holy Spirit and now starts to walk in newness of life and, and starts to go to these strange meetings with these strange people, right? What is that going to do to the dynamic of their marriage? husband's going to go, what happened to my wife? Right? Because he's going to see changes in her. And at first, he's probably not going to like those changes. Because maybe they don't want to do the same things together that they used to do. Maybe they don't want to share the same experiences. Maybe she doesn't want to go to the Colosseum and get all the, watch all the Christians get skewered. Right? There's all kinds of things in life that they probably would share together that are now different. <coughs> because she is different. And he's going he's gonna to think, my wife is not the same person. And of course, she's not the same person. She now 
is in Christ Jesus. And she's this new creature in Christ. She is not going to be the same person. Well, I'm reminded of a story. You guys may have, have heard of this. It's the story of Lee Strobel and his wife, Leslie. You ever heard of Lee Strobel? He wrote a book called The Case for Christ. But he didn't write the book of his own volition. Not by any means. They were a happily married couple with a young family until Leslie started to change. She eventually became a Christian, was baptized, throwing their marriage and their life together into serious jeopardy. Serious jeopardy. But I'm convinced that how she acted, how she loved God, followed Christ, and loved and supported her husband, regardless of this situation, is the reason that Lee Strobel himself not only converted to Christianity, who he was, that he was totally against from the beginning, he was not only converted, but through his fight against Christ, through his fight against this belief that his wife had been sucked into, he compiled as a journalist what became the book, The Case for Christ. Brian's going to play a small portion for me here. If somebody wanted to do an investigation into Christianity, where would you start? If the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, it's a house of cards. You sure you want to give me that loaded gun? I'm pretty sure you're not going to be able to pull the trigger. I've spent my entire career as a journalist uncovering the truth. Until the day my wife presented me with the biggest story of my life. I'm not going to lose my wife and my kids to something that I can't even reason with. And what happened next changed me forever. How can we even talk about historical evidence for the resurrection? The Gospels are filled with contradictions. The empty tomb is based on evidence. And isn't evidence your trade? We all bet our lives on something. The question is, what's it going to be? As much as I would like to help out a fellow skeptic, what you're proposing is impossible. Could Jesus survive being spiked to the cross? There is no evidence of anyone ever surviving a full Roman crucifixion. Just because I write something down and I bury it in the dirt, it doesn't make it true. What I felt was something more real than anything I've ever felt in my life. I'm praying for you. Do you really want to know the truth or is your mind already made up? Stop blaming me and the church and God and do your job. if the shroud is the actual burial cloth of the Christ. But whenever someone looks in those eyes for the first time, suddenly becomes a real person. Anybody seen that movie? An awesome movie. 
I really recommend it. A Shroud of Turin at the end, I don't know about that. But it's a phenomenal story. And not only did it change his life because of his wife's faith, but then he founded a ministry and, and has really affected a lot of change and a lot of understanding for people that otherwise wouldn't have understood the case for Christ, the proof that's there. He did a, a fantastic job with it. Now, this is just one example. How many countless other men that movies were never made of have been brought to Christ by their wives and by the conduct of their wives? Who, through their humble, Christ-like manner, just overwhelmed their husband's resistance? How many of those have there been? Well, someone might say, well, okay, so if husband and wife are already Christians then, does the wife have to submit to the husband anymore? Right? It's got a way to get out of this, right? Does she still have to do that? Well, absolutely. Because again, this is no different than just being a good Christian. And here's why. You turn over to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15. Because Paul, still addressing the church, he's about to address husbands and wives, but first he's addressing the church still. He says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. All the kinds of things we do in church, right? This is church. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God same word. It's the same Greek word. And he says, submit to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we should submit to one another. The same word as wives submit to your husband. Maybe it doesn't look so bad now. We are all in Christ supposed to submit to one another in humility and love looking out for the best interests of one another. Why would the wife not also do the same for her own husband? She is getting the instruction to submit to her brothers and sisters in Christ in church, but I'm not going to submit to my wife. It's the same thing. It is the same thing. A loving wife, of course, would. Paul continues, as Peter said earlier, Paul continues in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Again, in this same context of submitting in love, just as we are supposed to in the church. But notice something. Both Peter and Paul are clear about something. Wives are to submit to their own husbands. And that's not by accident. 
They're very specific with their words. None of these words are loose and just thrown in there for no reason. Wives are supposed to submit to their own husbands. Again, reflective of what? The Ten Commandments, right? And not to commit adultery. Submitting to somebody else's husband. Could that be adultery? Wives, submit to your own husbands. And the instruction from Paul and Peter should also not be construed as some sort of license to make women second-class citizens in society. That's not what's here. Now, has that been done? Yes. We have long history for that. We know that full well that men have used this to manipulate the environment and justify their behavior and their actions and did use this as license. I'm sure they did. But that's not what they were saying. It did not say, wives, submit to any man that comes along to your own husband. We should be careful to not allow the cultural changes in the world around us to damage the beautiful, loving, humble marriage relationship that Peter and Paul, that God wants us all to have. Paul continues, for the husband is the head of the wife, also as Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. Again, a woman could easily bristle with the idea that the husband being the head of the wife. That goofy guy? And you know, in our society we have painted men, unfortunately, as that goofy guy, haven't we? With the, the list of sitcoms where the dad, the husband, is, is really the brainless one. Right? And everybody else has to Fill in the dad. That's not what Paul and Peter are, are painting for us. And I have to ask this question, and it's a hard question, and again, we have to deal with this. But if a Christian woman cannot learn to submit to her own, her own husband, who she loves, and who is right there in front of her, then how can she hope to submit to Christ? as the head of the church, as her savior, as her true head, above her husband. It's part of that process by which we are to learn to love one another and, and submit to one another in humility. Because it enables us to submit to Christ. And for all of us as brothers and sisters in Christ, if we cannot learn submit to one another in this church, in our church family, and prefer one another, and look out for one another, and put the needs of the other ahead of our own, then how can we submit to Christ? That is a critical part of why we have a church. Because it is training us and it's teaching us and bringing us along in humility to submit ourselves to our Savior. But Jesus, you know, if you think about it, 
How many of us in this congregation have demanded of, of one of us great sacrifice? Mark, I need you to do a great sacrifice for me. Now, you, you probably would. But am I going to ask you to do something for me? No, I'm going to look to do something for you. Right? We don't ask one another for these great sacrifices. Maybe sometimes we should ask for some help. But that's not what I'm talking about. Jesus, he asks great sacrifices. He demands that we pick up our cross and follow him. He said so. He demands that we follow him. No matter what happens, no matter what struggle, no matter what comes our way because of it, he demands that we sacrifice for him. We, we read that at the beginning. Submitting to one another is the training ground by which we can learn to sacrifice. And we certainly don't make the kinds of demands that Christ makes of us. Not even close. Wives are called to show Christ Jesus. Remember, this is part of our calling. They're called to show Christ Jesus to the world in part by how they love, honor, and submit to their husbands, both as witnesses to their husbands and the world, but also as a means of perfecting their submission to Christ himself, who is the ultimate Lord and Master of every one of us. But there's more in here. Peter continues in 1 Peter 3, chapter 7. He says, Husbands, likewise, dwell with your wives, with them, with understanding, giving honor to the wife, as to the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Is there disparity here, do you think? I mean, on the face of it, we can look at this and say, well, yeah, Peter gave more instructions to the wives than he did to the husbands. What's up with that? But did he? Because, again, words are important, aren't they? And he uses a word, likewise. And in this context, likewise is very powerful. He says, likewise, husband." Well, what does likewise mean? Just the same. How about that? Isn't that interesting? In the same way, in the same manner. And interestingly enough, it means the same thing in Greek as well. Just to make it really clear. Likewise, husband. Interesting. So husbands are to act toward their wives in the same manner, in the same way that their wives should act towards them. And he says, giving honor to the wife, which means in the Greek to prize, to, to honor, to respect, to value as a precious, precious gift from God. Which surely our wives are that. Then he says something really, really remarkable. If you want to talk about countercultural, he then says, being heirs together of the grace of life. 
in today's world, we might not seem that that's so. That, that's not such a big deal. But back then, that a woman was an heir with a man. Are you kidding? That was countercultural. They are equal heirs of the grace of life. This is an expression of equality. The husband and wife were both heirs of the same grace, same reward, same spiritual blessing. At a time when women were considered what? Inferior to men. That their word could not be considered as reliable as men. Peter's saying, you're both heirs together. You're both heirs together. And then he says this to husbands. Do all of this, that your prayers be not hindered. Are your prayers hindered? Maybe you're not treating your wife the way you should. It's tied to a promise that we should do these things so God will hear our prayers. So our prayers, husbands, can be hindered by how we treat our wives. So do we honor them? Do we respect them? Do we listen and carefully take in their thoughts and ideas? Do we respect those thoughts and ideas? Do we understand the incredible role they play in our lives and our families. I'm always reminded of the statistic about men that are married versus men that don't marry. Men that marry statistically live longer than men that don't marry. And women that marry statistically live shorter than women that don't marry. How about that? Roar end of the deal there. But do we value our wives? Do we model the kind of Christ-like love and humility that we want our sons to have towards their wife? And do we model the kind of husband that we want our daughters to grow up and marry? Or do we talk bad about our wives? You know, when we're with the guys... They're listing off all the things that their wife does to make them crazy. Do we join in and say negative things and things that we don't like about our wives? Is our speech toward our wife respectful? Or is it condescending? Do we put our desires ahead of hers? Do we leave family responsibilities to our wives? Or share them? These are questions we need to ask ourselves as husbands. Now back in Ephesians 5, verse 29, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife, uh, loves his wife, loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, 
just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Quoting what? All the way back to the first, the first marriage. This is a great mystery, he says, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And again, this, there's so much in here. Is this a small thing? That we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Is this an easy thing? No, it's not. It's not a small thing. And I'm not just talking about sitting back in our comfy chair and saying, well, if somebody were to burst in through that front door, I'd throw myself in front of the bullets. Maybe you would. But that single moment isn't all that Christ gave up for the church. That was the ultimate moment that his path took him to, that his salvation for us required him to do. What I'm talking about, what Paul is talking about, is everything that Christ gave up for the church. He set aside his glory and power, his eternal life, his riches, and came down to earth and became a vulnerable baby. The creator of the universe did this for his bride. And then he grew up as a boy. And then as a man. A man, as we read in the scripture, that was tempted and likewise just as us, right? Just as us men. And what is one of the desires that we men have? It's the desire for a woman. And specifically a wife. But you know what he did? He rejected all other women for his beloved, for his church, his pride. That is what we are called to do as husbands. Christ forsook all other women for the bride he was going to make out of his own flesh, out of his own death and resurrection. This woman he prized above all and then ultimately gave his life. Not just in that one moment, but, but throughout his life. And he continues to do so. It doesn't stop. He continues to do so. Because he continues to care for and comfort and love his bride every minute. Every day. He's caring for us, his bride, his church. And... I imagine at every moment that he is away from us, every moment that he is away from us, he is longing to be united with us. His precious bride, his wife, his loved one. So husbands, how can we possibly hope to love Christ Jesus, who we don't see with our eyes? if we cannot love our wives who we do see and serve and honor them that is right in front of us. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 28, it says, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
Happy wife, happy life, right? Do you love yourself? Well, love your wife. And we, we laugh at that, but it's true. And it's beautiful. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it, cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. We are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. For this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this is the great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, that one little phrase at the end of that passage there is a gem. It is a gem. It's a gem of wisdom for the wives. Because you may not know this, pretty sure you do, but husbands are kind of emotional creatures, a little sensitive at times. We, uh, we like to put on this rough, manly exterior, but I have a theory that we're all really just about 10-year-old boys on the inside. <coughs> yep. And sometimes we act accordingly, don't we? <clears throat> but we are easily and deeply wounded by something. Something that's really very unique to men. And husbands especially. We are wounded by signs of a lack of respect. It is central. It is central to a man to be respected. Not worshipped, not adored. I mean, if you want to do that too, that's great. But respected. And not gaining that respect and not being given that respect, even accidentally, is terribly wounding to a husband. And apparently Paul knew that. Which is funny because he was never married, was he? But giving that respect Giving that love and respect to a husband, well, that just benefits both the husband and the wife together. There's one other point I would like to make here that's critical, especially for women. Peter and Paul's instructions are, shall I say, to maybe the average normal marriage with, with a range, right? Because every marriage is different. Every two people are different. But he's, he's giving us some generality, generalities here. But we know, unfortunately, that that's not always the case, is it? The, in, the instruction that they give here is to be used with guidance from the Holy Spirit. But not all marriages are good and safe. And we know that, and that is true. Women are under no obligation to submit to husbands who physically and psychologically abuse them. Absolutely not. In fact, if you go back to read 1 Peter 3, 5, and 6, he says, for, for in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good, and they're not afraid with any terror. 
There should not be terror in a marriage. There should be absolutely no terror in a marriage. But we know, fortunately, in some marriages there have been. And there are. And, it, and to us, maybe it's inconceivable that, that a man could act that way towards a woman, especially his wife. But we know it happens. And it should not be that way. And it should not be that way in a Christian marriage, of all things. And of course, we can apply that, too, in a broader sense, can't we? It should not be that way in the church, in the body of Christ. There should be no terror. We should not be afraid of one another. We should not be terrorized by one another. Instead, each and every one of us, husbands and wives alike, should treat our own husband or wife as we should treat Christ Jesus and how we want him to treat us. If we do, then we'll simply be blessed. We'll just simply be blessed in our marriages and our church family. In closing, I just want to read 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12. He says, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. And we can read this as being in the church, but I think it's absolutely applicable in marriages. Have compassion for one another. Love as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted and courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to do this, that you may inherit a blessing. Realize what he's saying here, not reviling for reviling. If, if, if a brother or sister reviles against us, bless them. It's really hard for somebody to keep reviling against you when you're blessing them all the time. Knowing that you are called to do this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those that do evil. Let's do good. In our church family, and in our marriages so that the Lord will hear our prayers so that we will 